the Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Hello, everyone. I am Pamela Morales de Hendricks, the Communications Officer for the Museum of South Texas History. Season four begins. It's exciting to share this new season because we've heard some amazing stories about Village in the Valley, which is a local nonprofit here in the Rio Grande Valley. And on its website, it states that its mission is elevating and uniting the Black community while connecting cultures in the Rio Grande Valley. That sounds awesome. In the first episode, in this first episode, however, I'd like to note that we did an interview with a professor from Texas A&M Kingsville to provide context about the history of Black culture, influence, and presence in South Texas. It's important to know that the Black community is not necessarily a new community in the region. And uh, we'll talk about that in this interview with the professor, and his name is Alberto Rodriguez. So we will learn more about that. So hopefully you'll take a listen, and then you'll listen to the rest of the episodes, which is about four of them, and you'll get to meet some of the founders of Village in the Valley and board members and the exciting new things that they are doing. Without further ado, let's go ahead and start to take a listen. Hello everyone, my name is Pamela Morales de Hendricks, the Communications Officer for the Museum of South Texas History. Welcome to Stories from the Rio Grande. We're very excited to have this interview with Alberto Rodriguez. So this first episode of season four of Stories from the Rio Grande will really discuss Village in the Valley organization, but we also wanted to provide some historical context about the Black communities in the Rio Grande Valley and Northeastern Mexico. So Alberto, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Alberto Rodriguez. I'm an Associate Professor of History at Texas A&M Kingsville. Uh, native to South Texas. My work specializes on black-brown relations on the borderlands in Mexico. I have a dissertation and publications looking at the community from 1750 to about 1960, especially specializing on enslaved narratives, communities, urban communities in Edinburgh, Harlingen, McAllen, uh, Raymondville, and sort of looking at the dynamics of migration, interaction, labor, and politics uh, in the area. So I continue to develop work. Originally it started just in South Te the South Texas border. It's migrated over to look at the Afro-Cuban experience, the Afro-Caribbean experience, looking at media that's coming from Mexico, also to make a bigger argument of why black communities or black folks uh, migrated to the borderlands. And not only speaking about one side of the border, but speaking about both sides of the border. So I continue to do this work. I continue to sort of dabble in sort of the black-brown experience through music, through film, and through oral history. Awesome. So one of the first things I'd like to mention about the Museum of South Texas History is we do start the 
our permanent exhibit, the Rio Grande Legacy Prehistories, what we call it, up until the 1950s. So it really starts off with the exhibit with this really beautiful photograph, a sunset view of Boca Chica, I believe. So basically the mouth of the river. And there is a quote by Alvar Nunes Cabeza de Vaca, who, you know, basically came through the valley as uh, scholarly works and studies and things like that have, you know, the evidence is that he probably came through South Texas, said that he came across a big river, se atravesaron a un gran río. And then it goes into the you know, sea creatures that were living in the area because South Texas was underwater. And then, you know, talks about the Ice Age and things like that. And then we have the Cualhuitecan diorama. And in there, you know, talks about how South Texas, or at least the communities, the indigenous communities that lived here, Cabeza de Vaca, really observed that the families cherished their offspring the most in the world which says a lot about our community because we're all about family down here. But the other thing that a lot of people may or may not know is he was not alone when he traveled. He had, it was a group of four of them, and one of them was Estebanico. So there's kind of like this discussion that we've had uh, with the museum CEO, Francisco Guajardo, about who was really the first black person to visit the Americas. And there is possible, right, uh, we're just speculating that Estebanico, who was a Moorish slave, was the first African to step in the Americas. No, I would agree with that. I think Estebanico, after he lands in, in Galveston, gets in prison, sold off, uh, has to navigate himself along the indigenous people. We have to also understand that enslaved people in indigenous communities is very different than enslaved people in 13 colonies of the Caribbean. There was a sense of being able to move out of that that stage. So I would say, yes, most definitely Estebanico is this first person that comes through Texas. I, I hesitate to the Americas to say that because uh, if we look at some of the uh, work that's coming out of the Caribbean and it's coming out of South America, the conversations have been that maybe people off the, the, of the coast, the west coast of uh, Africa, have already been sailing to uh, meet the Incas. This is where we have the Inca heads that, that, that's sort of out of place, or the Pacific Islanders. But I would just say, yes, if we, if we want to talk about Texas and what is the United States, I would most definitely say Estebanico. If you want to stay, stay about the Americas, I think we have to, um, we have to really think about maybe points of contact already that happened before any European invader or settler, whatever you want to call them, came. They could have already been contact. And we, we're people in South America, scars in South America and Mexico, are really trying to, trying to unpack this right now. Uh, and this conversation has gone on for a long time, especially with the Inca Empire. But Estabanico is really, really important because what he's able to do is go back to Mexico with these four people and then lead an expedition to the Southwest. And, and that's interesting because he comes from, he goes from an enslaved person to a person that sort of leads an expedition or helps lead an expedition into the Southwest where later he's actually killed. But yeah, I would most definitely, when I teach, I start with Stevanico. That's exactly where I start.
episode, we kind of have, again, this possible Asevanico, first African to be in in the in Texas and the United States. So what happens after that? What happens to, obviously, you know, Cabeza de Vaca goes back to Spain, writes about his experience. Not to say that that what is what made, you know, age of exploration in the quote-unquote new world, but what sort of happened after that? With the uh, Sabanico and with Cabeza de Vaca, or what happens with the uh, sort of migration of yes, people? Yes, migration. Okay. Well, let me say something real quick, about, but a lot of people might not know about this part of Cabeza de Vaca. Cabeza de Vaca lives among the indigenous people as, as a medicine man, and he sort of, that's how he gets released. And when he goes back, he has a dilemma because of his Catholicism with how he, beautiful these indigenous people were and how he sort of lived upon them and how he had to negotiate medicine, folk medicine, with Catholicism because it's two different things, right? And and so when he writes about it, there's if you actually look in between, there's a sense of romanticizing these communities. Having said that, the next sort of really important contact we have is with uh, in 1748, 49, 50, with Escandon. Escandon talks about that same river you talked about, the Boca, the, the Rio Grande, about seeing indigenous people that looked different. They were taller, they were darker, and, and they were black. And he, they lived among the indigenous people. He writes very little about it in Nuevo Santander. Nuevo Santander is what is no, northern Mexico all the way to what the valley is today. It's a settlement that was actually put here in order to sort of populate the area. And it goes, cities like today along the border that you see are established during that particular time. Now, doing a little research, we know that these probably were Africans that, were, that escaped the Caribbean or escaped Mexico and came up and settled around those areas. It's, uh, and we do have some sense of some boats that actually crashed into the sand dunes and they lost everything. We don't know exactly where those were. Uh, we have some, but it most definitely probably Caribbeans, Afro-Cubans, uh, what would be Afro-Cubans, Afro-Dominicans uh, today uh, that came up on some Mexicanos, uh, Afro, well, New Spain, it was all New Spain at that time. That's the second, that's sort of the, the, the second time we see in history, and it's almost, what, 100 years later, right? So we knew that there was people that were already living in this area in 1750, not just passing through, but living among the indigenous people. That might be the Caranquas. I, can't, I don't think he actually talks about what particular tribe, I can't remember right, but he most definitely says that they were taller, they were darker, they had wiry hair, and they were dark. And he, I think he even calls them Los Negros in this diary we wrote in Spanish. So that's the next the next step. And then the next one we don't have is until about 18, under the American Civil Wars, the next time we have our large, the next largest migration. And we could talk about that if you want me to, but I don't want to jump ahead a little too much. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So the next sort of documentation historically we have is during the American Civil War when the Confederacy is blocked from shipping cotton through the ports, especially New Orleans and stuff. King and Kennedy and Frankie Turia get together and devise a way to get cotton through Brownsville to Port Baghdad. Duria was a Mexican resident and dual citizen, and so he could get a boat and put it under under American flag, sell that cotton out into Europe or sometimes even back to New York, and it was a Confederate cotton. And so it's a different country. You can't really stop it. But the people who brought the cotton from Texas, from areas like Houston, Corpus, even as far as Alabama, many a times that cotton was bought uh, with slaves, enslaved people. And many of those enslaved people actually knew that Mexico had done away with slavery. 
Uh, and Mexico does starts doing away with slavery even under the Spanish Empire in 1819. And they do this because they also want to poke at the 13 colonies because of Florida. And, and, and they say, well, if you cross to Florida, which is Spain right now, and then later Mexico, you're free. And thus, we have a lot of those people, I'll come back to the story a little bit, that, that escape the 13 colonies and go and live among the, the Seminole. And they become what we know today as the Black Seminole or the Mascobos, uh, as far as uh, Mexican people know. And I'll come back to here a little bit about why those are important. So Mexico didn't see the need to have slaves because they had a lot of indigenous labor. Not that they were not racist, it's just that it was, uh, the cost was not, was not working out. It was the Caribbean sort of kept on with it, and Mexico ste- stepped away a little bit from it. And, but we have people that say, okay, I'm going to Mexico. I'm free there. We have documentation of slave narratives. I'm going to Brownsville. Ben Kenchlow, the most popular one, as a one-year-old. His mom is, is actually sent to to, Me- to Brownsville because she was pregnant by the the master, and he grows he goes up in, in, in Brownsville talking about how his family interacted with Mexicanos and they killed animals and they shared it. It had to work. Uh, later, his mom marries a Latino, and he has... He's considered, he goes from black in the census to mulatto, uh, and then later on he moves back to Houston where in the census he's now documented as black again. We have episodes in, in the enslaved narratives that talk about how the Mexicanos used to help runaway slaves with having chalanes or boats that go around the river and they would rig them up and they would leave them unlocked for people to get away. Not sure if that happened because it was just a way of getting back and forth. But the idea that they left them on lock was kind of interesting. And they talk about going to Mexico and getting on a ride, working in Mexico, being free, speaking the language, and then after the war coming back. We have about 13, 14 of those. Well, now about seven of those in the valley that talk about that migration. And some of those people don't, don't ever return. And lately there's been some work done on the Underground Railroad that goes to Mexico. But you also have to understand that there's always been a black community. There's always been an African diaspora in Mexico, whether it be Veracruz, Guerrero. There's always been community there. Maybe it was an African-American, but there's been an African diaspora there. So that's the, the third time we see sort of documentation. These are larger numbers and actually speaking directly to the interaction between black folks and brown folks in Mexico and on the border. And those were collected in the 1930s by the WPA. They still exist today. You can find those at the Library of Congress. And we have some in Laredo. We have some a little further out in New Mexico. But I, I concentrate on the ones in South Texas. And, and so, yeah, and we have pictures of some of those people that actually those, those slave narratives were taken when they were about 80 or 90 years old. Yeah, I know the we came across Ben Kinchlow, and that was super interesting because they, they had one of his photos, I think, in the National Archives. So. Yes. And I think it was a trans. A, the transcript of a oral yes, history? Yes. Yeah, There's so. two of them, actually. Oh, ben okay. Kershaw has one of the longest narratives. It's one is 25 pages, one is 10. Now, what's interesting about one of the narratives is that Ben Kershaw later starts working for the Texas Rangers. If we know about the Texas Rangers, they have a, a horrible history of oppressing uh, Mexicanos in the area. And he talks about how one episode that he was guiding for the Texas Rangers and then come across a bunch of Mexicans and they, not him particularly, but the Rangers shoot up the Mexicanos and there's nothing but blood in the Rio Grande. Which is really interesting because he would have probably known, if, if the story is true, he would have known exactly what was going on with the Rangers in the community. Now that we're blaming Kenchlow, but we have to also unpack that, right? I mean, he also, there's a really cool one on there where he actually works up the ra- up the road here in Laguna Seca Ranch and falls in love with a Mexicana and talks about how the Mexicano manager of the, of the ranch lets him court his daughter 
and he talks about how he used to go nights and talk and stuff like that, which is interesting because it's very few. Now, we also have to take these with a grain of salt, right? I mean, they're collected later on. Uh, stories t- tend to get a little different, but there's most definitely, Kenshlow, I think, is the richest narrative, two rares that sort of talk about that interaction and how he sort of navigated being a black person on the border. First, living within the community, then falling in love within the community, and then joining the Rangers at that time, which were, were causing havoc in South Texas. So you had mentioned one of the things about the slavery in Mexico and then not, I guess, could we kind of go back to that sure, a little bit? Sure, I mean, one of the things you have to understand, and this is where the Black Seminole story will come in really, really well. You have to understand that Mexico's biggest fear was that that after 1836 and the Republic of Texas, that the Anglos would keep on coming and taking Mexico and keep on coming and taking Mexico. And there was actually talk about under the Knights of the Golden Circles to take all of Mexico. But at the question under Polk was, what do we do with all these Mexicans, you know? Because, I, mean, they, they they, I mean, remember, the, the Marines, or what is Marines today, they went all the way down to Mexico City and when they invaded after, after the, uh, the War of 18, 1848, right? What is, what is, how does, how does uh, Marine Ham go? Do you remember the first lines? From the shores of Tripoli to the halls of Montezuma. They're actually talking about where the Marines got their stripes. And they had, when, after the, the, uh, the, the Mexican-American War, they went all the way to defeat Mexico in Mexico City. And there was talk about taking it all. So what's the best way to get back at the, 13, at the Republic of Texas, which we know was led by Americans, right? And eventually we have the 1848 war, was to free slaves, right? And the, for, uh, they, he, they saw this already coming, that, that the encroachment was happening, even in eight, under Spanish rule, Right. Not that there were, there was no sense of like we're not racist. It was, it was, it was strictly an economic and a way to ho- fend off the thirteen colonies or the, the, the United States. And this conversation started as early eighteen nineteen. And by eighteen twenty, when Mexico was under independence and becomes Mexico, they they fully enact it, right? And and so when the Black Seminoles come, and and they start the Black folks from the thirteen colonies migrate to Florida or escape to Florida and they interact, the very first thing the Mexican government does uh, as, as, as early as 1850, 1860, is contact the, the black Seminole to become part of Mexican, the Mexican government. And they migrate to what today is Crystal City and what is that, the Eagle Pass on the opposite side. And they become the Mascobos and they're giving land and they actually become what is today almost like a border patrol protecting Mexico. Along with that, you have the Kikapoo that are giving land there, and also you have an, an Asian tribe there, an Asian Asian folks that also in that particular area, and they saw that as a direct play, a direct site to Monterrey, and they petitioned these people to move from Florida, the Black Seminole, become a community. Now the community is still there, if you want to see it, the Moscovos or the Black Mexican Seminoles, and they've done some documentaries on them. Not huge, but they they speak their native African language and Spanish. And it's a really interesting dynamic. And so they were already using people to sort of guard the frontera. Same thing that 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 Escandon did in 1750 to fortify what it would become a frontera when there was Candon. 
That continued in 1860, 1870 because of the migration of the black Seminoles, right? And those later on, there'll be a lot of those people that were the Muscogos or black Seminoles in Mexico will come in to live in Matamoros. But the idea that, that it was, to me, as a historian of the borderlands, it was more about trying to maintain some kind of discourse or mess up with with the the Americans and make sure that that, that we were they were a thorn in their sides. And it, it again also, you know, the labor, the indigenous labor in Mexico was more profitable because remember the Spanish missionized natives, not slaves, right? And they had a very in the Caribbean we see the missionizing of slaves, African slaves. And so the, if you look at when Spanish shifted their missionized system from Texas to the Southwest, New Mexico, and California, it was haciendas that enslaved indigenous people, native peoples. And that's where their focus was. Although you do have, so let me give you a little pebble of knowledge, you do have also the Catholic Church introduces San Martin de Porre later on, right? As this, this sort of saint that comes in the 60s. And then in, in the Caribbean, there's San Benito to sort of also represent sort of an idea of missionizing black folks, you know, African people of African descent. So there's this adverse effect within the church and the government that says it's beneficial for us not to have slaves economically, and also we can get at a new form, Texas Republic, and later Texas. Uh, and this, this is always going to be a thorn in their back. So when we when Spain had a mission, the very first mission in San Agustin in Florida, they got invaded by... Europeans, and they never forgot that. And so they knew that that encroachment was happening. They could see it, you know, with uh, Lewis and Clark, and they could see it. And this was a way to to sort of continue this idea, like, you know what, hey, there's a space here. Even if we don't want them here, that's not saying that we're not, they're not racist. They're just, you know, they're, we, we got you, we got you on this one. We, you know, we, we continue this. And so the people, a lot of people say, no, it's economic. Well, that was part of it too, but most definitely this idea that we're going to provide, we're going to continue this, this conversation, having people, hey, can you come here, come here, be free, you know, and you don't have to deal with what they have to deal with over there. And so we, it's, it's an interesting sort of dynamic that I think still, as scholars, we haven't done enough work on. But most definitely, you know that that was happening because slaves knew, enslaved people knew that Mexico was freedom, right? How did they find out? Well, because it was advertised, people knew, right? It wasn't just something that just popped up. And and many took advantage of that. We have people from Louisiana fa- sailing south during the northern earth and landing in, in, in parts of Tampico and stuff like that. So, yeah. had mentioned also the underground railroad in Mm -hmm. south texas and one of the most famous i guess from a museum standpoint for us is all just really speculation that the jackson ranch the jackson family aided in the underground railroad so yeah this is one of those things that i think is interesting because you know it's been i think there's a person at ut austin working on dissertation oh she's finished on the underground railroad going south and then if you want to compare it to the people that went north where there were safe houses, we haven't found that yet. We know that that there is this big speculation that there was 
we've heard even stories that there was underground tunnels and this, this, and that. We never found any of that. But what we do know, and I can tell you this from firsthand, is that we have families that were Jacksons that went to Mexico and then came back. And we know that they had kids in Mexico and they married Mexicanas. And so we knew that that connection existed. And they didn't go too far. We know that they were maybe around what today's Reynosa or Matamoros and they came back. But I have not found any evidence of the organized. I mean, I would not doubt it. I mean, there was a church and there was a black and brown community there. But I have looked for this also and I have not found direct connections of saying, okay, these people assisted, no documentation. But again, I mean, you wouldn't want to advertise it either, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of like you want to make sure people are safe. We do know that a little further down, and we look at Laredo, Laredo becomes a hotbed of also runaway slaves. And the Benavides brothers that were Confederate, worked for the Confederacy, helped recover or escaped and recovered them, put them back in the United States. And that becomes a big point of contention with the Mexican government because they're coming into a different country. But I yet to find anything that says, written, that that happened. And I'm not taking anything away from the Webbers and the Jacksons because they had a tremendous community, church, schools, history. But I, I have not found that either. But I, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, I don't know if it was as organized as we would think of, you know, the northern underground world. But there was people coming south and they were escaping. I mean, there was no doubt about that. We have documentation. Many of them were doing it themselves, many of them have opportunities. Uh, the other thing that they did also is during the cattle drives. Many of them actually went to Mexico to get cattle with their with their with their owners and they drove it they drove it down through through Kansas and they stayed down there and they escaped. You know what I mean? Even Sam Houston talks about seeing his former slaves in Matamoros when he goes down there. And so I have not found, unfortunately, that evidence. So are the the Jackson and the Webbers, were there any other families that yeah, came with them? Yeah, there was Webbers, Singletaries, Jacksons, and Rutledges in that particular area. Now, we have other families in different areas, but that particular area, and we have documentation, we have the, we have the census and stuff, but those, three, those four families, Singletaries, Weber's, Jackson's, and Rutledge's. We all found in that what is today about the Donna area, right in that area, and they had land in there. Those are the four families that I found in that, that later on. It's really weird because those families, I can't find them in the cities anymore. They stay, they're rural. Once the city comes, we're looking at about the 1890 census, 18, 1890, 1880 census, and they're, they're there, most definitely. Many of them interracially married to Latinos and Latinas and Latinas that were actually born in Mexico for the most part, not Tejanas. And like I said earlier, those families are still around today, you know, but they, they don't claim to be of African descent. Oh, and the Champions is another one, sorry, Champions. The Champions is another family that, that comes out to you, and they say that they're from, originally from the island. There is a Champion family that comes from the island, but there's a Champion family that was in, also part of this. Uh, and you'll see these pe- people with... Latino first names that are around today, Singletary Rutledge's, uh, would be like Juan Jose Rutledge or Juan Jose Jackson. And many of them don't know their history or don't want to know their history. And we know that they're there. Uh, but those are the five families that we see. Uh, again, the Rutledge's, the Weber's, Singletary's, Champions, and Jackson's. Yeah, and they pretty much came to South Texas in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. We have early, we have the Weber family actually stopping in what today is Weberville. That's actually the city named after him. And they get run out of Weberville because they're interethnic and inter, interracially married. I think we have them down as early. I think the 1850 census is missing because of the war. But by 1860, 1870, we already have 
the beginning of that chain migration that happens. And they're coming from Alabama, Mississippi, Missouri, uh, not Missouri, but Alabama, Mississippi, and I think part of Tennessee to this particular area. So was this before or after the Civil War? No, this is uh, right after the Civil War. Well, 1865, the Civil War ends. So right after the Civil War. So the so let me so I call it waves of migration. So I don't really talk about the migration of of Escandon. I start my migration with the enslaved people. That's migration one. Migration two is the Webers, right after the Civil War, and they have migration three, which is the African Americans that come into the cities. They come into Edinburgh, McAllen, Raymondville. Those are my migration three, and then in between there you have a small migration of the black troops about 1900 between migration two and three, which is between the Webbers and the Jacksons and the urban African-Americans. You have the black troops that come during 1890 to 1906 when they get pushed out of Brownsville. So you have black troops in, in Rio Grande City, and then you have black troops in Brownsville, all blacks, infantries. That's a, not really a sense of migration because they didn't settle here. They were here for a short period of time, but they most definitely... Uh, the Brownsville Fair is something that's been studied a lot. But before the Brownsville Fair, we actually had an episode that happened, a gunfight, a shootout that happened in Rio Grande, I think 1899, if I'm correct, 1898. And then another group of all black surrogated military people. And then they got blamed also for doing something they didn't do. And then you have the urban migration, uh, what we call, what I call in my work, the old-timer blacks. And these are all, for the most parts, other parts of Texas, but they settled not in the rural area, but the cities and the, de- the developing cities and towns in the valley. So they came during that, like you said, that third migration, and this was probably around after, before Jim Crow laws? It was between 1910 and 1950. So the cities may all, so we have, the, 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 that particular migration follows a railroad. Okay, the railroad comes in 1908, 1909, connects to Harlingen, connects out. Some of them come with as porters, some of them come as brakemen, and others come just to settle in this area. And that, particular, that migration happens, uh, starts around 1910 when all these little cities such as Edinburgh, well, not little anymore, but Edinburgh, McAllen, Mission, all start popping up. You start seeing these migrations coming down from Houston, from Dallas, from Waco, Rice, Texas, which is the West family. And they start establishing this. So this is in the middle of what we know Jim Crow, you know, and right before them, the Civil Rights Act, right before school board, 1955. That 55 is when we start seeing those black communities decrease. When integrate schools, people start moving to Houston for opportunities, and we start seeing a, mi- a migration. The communities decrease. We have migration. We have communities in Harlingen between 1910 and 1950 that are 200, 300, 400 people sometimes, depending what city you're looking at. I mean, Raymondville, 1920, I believe, has about 110 people, 120 people. Uh, Edinburgh had almost 100 people. The biggest area, believe it or not, would be Harlingen. Harlingen had a thriving black community because that's also where the, originally the, the, the railroad came in and people settled there. We have beautiful pictures that were collected from a photographer called Robert Runyon that had a, had a uh, photography shop in Brownsville, and he took beautiful pictures of these black communities that were coming down and photoshopped, a photo photoshop that he took these. But that particular migration is sort of probably... The one that's been documented the most. Those are the ones that had that third migration. You see the surrogated schools, surrogated neighborhoods, surrogated cemeteries, and, and, and interracial marriages 
as far as in record, decrease. Not saying that there was not interaction between black and brown people, because there was. But if you look at the census up to 1940s, it's the last one we have, those marriages don't exist as much as they did in the rural area, such as Jackson Chapel and the Jackson Ranch. But that migration is sort of what um, has given us the largest amount of history that we have today. They've left the largest footprint that we can find uh, in all these communities. And some of them are, unfortunately, not around anymore because, I mean, they would be in their hundreds already. Uh, but their children, many of, some of their children are still around today. And those would be, if we look at a city like Edinburgh, the Norman family, the West family, which is probably one that has been very instrumental in, in, in Edinburgh, the Flower family, in, also in Mission and in, in Harlingen, the Gant families. These families originally settled around that time, and many of them are still around today. You're talking about how there's a decrease in the black communities in the region. And one of the things that popped in my head was in the 1910 jail exhibit, we have a reproduction of a page in one of the sort of the advertising of the Magic Valley, you know, oh, hey, mm-hmm. come visit yeah. or whatever. And I believe it was for Chapin, with, you know, Edinburgh. And basically has like a paragraph long and it's titled no negroes yeah and how that that chapin will always be a white man's town and i wonder if i mean yes the jim crow laws but also the the anglos coming in really affected that decrease yeah yeah and so you also have to understand that most people have a really sort of misunderstanding of the Anglos that moved here, they were not Southerners. They were Midwesterners. You know, Sherry was not a Southerner. King was not a Southerner. King was actually from New York. You know, Kennedy was not a Southerner. Chapin is an interesting story because he, I don't, I don't know if he, knows, he runs out of favor when his, his son commits a crime. That's why we, if it was still, we, would still, we wouldn't be Edinburgh, we'd still be Chapin, right? But there was most definitely this idea, this Midwestern idea of like, we want to sell this as a white oasis, right, with cheap Mexican labor, you know. Uh, and they're trying also to compete with what's going on with the San Joaquin Valley in California and develop it sort of this agricultural, beautiful weather. But there's most definitely these voices that, that says no, no blacks, no Negroes, this and that. But it's interesting when you do see that every major city had a thriving black community. So somehow, and I don't know the answer to this, even though those those issues existed, these communities were still able to find what is the black community in Edinburgh, McAllen, develop schools uh, such as, or churches like the Rising Star Church, the Bethel Church, the Corinth Church, still that existed. So yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting because those existed all the time. And, and But along with that, where it says no Negroes, it also say no Mexicans and no dogs. You know what I mean? So this is, this movement that happened, what we call the the 
there's so let me back up. So there's two migrations of Anglo's that happens here. There's a migration of what we call the old timer blacks that David Montejano talks about. And these are the people like Sherry, McAllen, that, that came and settled areas and, and developed things. And then you have a new, very, or A.Y. Baker in particular here in Edinburgh. And then you have a migration that happens around 1930 or so. And these people are even more radical. These, 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 are, these guys are super radical. And they actually form a party to oust the, 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 the Anglos that were, that were using political machines with Mexican votes. They actually take A.Y. Baker to court. A.Y. Baker actually dies. These are families like the Dargles that are around here. They actually get in the shootouts with other whites because they're, they're not conservative enough in their eyes. And they actually form a, a good government good government party that challenges the Sherry's and challenges the, the McCallans and the A.Y. Bakers and stuff like that. And for like 10 years or so, this is going on, you know, and, and they're trying to turn it into like a true idea of a true Jim Crow. It doesn't work out because they couldn't vote. They couldn't really win without the Mexican vote. And, and these guys had done that. And then later out of that pops out the Latino pop, the, the Mexicano politician, such a here in the valley, like the Kiki de la Garzas, the Palacios, uh, the Guerras pop out of that. And so it's it's even within the white community or the Anglo community, there was issues uh, where it wasn't conservative enough and stuff like that. Ultimately, like I said earlier, uh, just talking to you, I only know of two instances of violence, deathly violence against the black community, and that is the Jackson. Is it Nat Jackson, I believe, or Polo? Polo, Polo Jackson, yes. the one that gets found in the Rio Grande, shot up. And then in Edinburgh, we have an instant in 1928, I believe, where Leonard Bass gets shot in the back by a Kentucky man over a laundry dispute with his with Leonard Bass's wife. And Leonard Bass was, he actually shines shoes in front of a barber shop and he turns his back on this person and he shoots him in the back. And then we see that man get arrested and then we don't hear anything about him later. We've, he, we've, we've lost him in history. We can't find the inquest papers. But I know Leonard Bass dies of those injuries. Those are the two instances. I'm, I'm sure that there's other racial violence, but those are the two, only, two instances that I know that was violence where people passed, actually were killed. And so, yeah, it, it's an interesting conversation because Shapin himself had a very different view than A.Y. Baker had or even Sherry or Stillman or... Jim Wells, these other guys understood that they could not win and keep an office without the minority vote, especially the Latino vote. And so one of the one of the questions I asked many of these people when I interviewed them back in 20, 2003 was why did they come to the valley? And they said, well, the valley provided a buffer zone. It wasn't free of segregation. It wasn't free of racism. But my kids were not likely to get killed and hung by a tree like they were in Waco. If you look at what happened in Waco with the Washington lynching, or they weren't likely to be arrested and accused of something. And so they found the valley, specifically the cities, as an area of, of, of safety, a buffer zone. And one of the things that if I, when I write about my history is that labor was also segregated. Like, you know, most, most people that worked in laundry and in hotels were black. And Latinos, Mexicanos were doing like carpentry work and stuff like that. So the labor is what we call ethnically divided also. And you find that across the cities. So there was most definitely a sense of it still being the Deep South. You know, we have pictures of 
of in the 1920s, 1910s, you know, black porters stopping in Brownsville and our black brakemen that used to work. And we have families, the free family from Raymondville, you know, they, he came here as a brakeman and he stayed here. So labor is super interesting because it also tells you a lot about if you can find an ethnic niche in labor, like the Chinese did or the Mexicanos did or the, or the Germans did, that's what sort of pulls you out of certain situations, right? Now you move for work, but at the same time, there's ethnic niche that needs labor. And one of the things to remember is that South Texas, the Rio Grande Valley, has always been growing. And so if you look at the census, every city has double-digit growth. Every census is 1900. We've never, it fell a little between the Depression, we fell a little bit, but we've always had 10, 20, 30, 40% growth every census. So the valley continues to demand labor. And at that time, even today, I would say it doesn't matter what ethnic group you are as long as you're able to do a certain job, you know, and, and that was the job that, that people saw, you know, and they, they also saw an opportunity and they thought, why do we move? We move for work. We move for a better situation. And they found both in South Texas. So the next migration after that particular migration to the cities, we have an out-migration that happens during the civil rights movement between 55 and about late 70s. And by about 1980, we get a new migration. And this is a migration that continues today. And these are what I call newcomers. Uh, and these are people that are coming from cities like Cincinnati, the Midwest, Chicago. And they're all professionals for the most part. Lawyers, nurses, doctors that are coming here to work. And their, their children are even being raised here or they born here. And this family has happened, this particular migration has happened for the last maybe 30 years or so and continues to grow. And this particular community has been instrumental in sort of gathering the history of, of these communities that existed here since the 1800s. And sometimes they're coming from areas like Boston, New York, more opportunity, cheaper real estate, sometimes more opportunity in, in, in for their kids in school as far as sports and academics. And it's become a, a migration that continues. And now, this is not the only migration of African Americans, let me say that, because we have a migration of South Asians. We've seen an increase in uh, Asian folks, specifically Filipinos, and it's continuous. It's not just a migration for one ethnic group. It's a migration for groups of all ethnicities, but for most definitely this migration of African Americans have come in from the last 30 years has continued to grow, and it's, it's, it's brought great diversity, continues to bring great diversity to South Texas, and allows us to engage in conversations like this. We worked a little bit, we're starting to work a little bit with the South Asian community, and specifically the Indian community that's been here since also the 1970s and continues to grow. We know about the, the Jewish community that's been here since a long, since since the settlement of the area, Sephardic Jews, and and the Filipino community that, that started growing around the 2000s with the need for nurses that continues to, to grow. So it's, it's a good time to have these conversations and, and not talk at each other, but talk with each other. And that's really, really important because I, these histories sometimes become very personal and, and they're hard to sort of unpack, right? And, and, and we have to sort of talk to each other about, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing this week and what, what is it. Let me say that I, I did skip a little bit about, let me go back up a little bit because 
the frontera or the border has always had an African influence. You know, with that African influence might be Afro-Cuban, Afro-Dominican, Afro-Puerto Rican, or, or Afro-Mexicano. There's always been instances. You can look at cartoons that have been very racist, but like the Mean Pinguin. You have Regotonga. You have, in the 1930s and 40s, you have a collection of Afro-Cubans being, being part of Mexican cinema, where they were being able to act in, in Cuba or, or in the United States they were able to act and play, bring the music like salsa, merengue, perespado, Benny More, and they become part of this Mexican cinema, center to it, right? And acting alongside people like Tintan and, and Cantiflas and becoming stars where they couldn't do it in Cuba because they were dark or they couldn't do it in the United States. They have these voices, right? And Mexico continues to have the very, I mean, we always think of Barack Obama being the first black person, well, no, Vicente Guerrero, who was actually of, of uh, a mixed race, African lineage, was a president of Mexico in, what is it, 1918-something, 1800s, around 1880, 1890. And we have La Costa Chica, which is a, a colony of people of African descent that, in Veracruz and Guerrero. And we also have the history of Yanga, which is the first uh, slave to lead a successful revolt uh, against slavery in Mexico. And they actually have a city and a statue named him. Where I was to Haiti as being the first sort of successful slave revolt, but actually Yanga led a, sexual, a, a successful revolt against, against the Spanish Empire way before that. And so there's been a history of, of Mexican, and we talked about San Martin de Porra, right? of Mexican, of, of, of the African diaspora throughout Mexican history and along the border, and that sort of transcends the border. Because I remember as a kid looking at these black bodies and these black images being broadcasted on TV or in music, and they were part of my everyday, everyday. You know, uh, Toña la Negra is another one, that actually, and then Celia Cruz also being part of my upbringing on the border. And so it's interesting to sort of think about how the border on both sides allows for these black spaces where they're African-American or afro Afro-Caribbean or Afro-Latino, they're there on both sides of the border. And it's, it's become a very dynamic place. And many times we don't talk about the other side and why that matters, right? And it's, it's, it's important. Music, movies, images of, of black bodies. This is why we have people like Eartha Kitt. I don't know you know who Eartha Kitt is. Eartha Kitt is the woman who sings Santa Baby. Oh, yes. She's also the first black. She's actually a cat woman. She actually makes a whole album in Spanish. And she sings perfect Spanish. Huh. Jack Johnson, the famous boxer, leaves to Mexico because he marries a white woman. He's being run out and being, he's trying, they're actually trying to actually uh, arrest him. And he lives in Mexico for a while. And he's protected by the government. And he goes to Cuba and stuff and boxes and stuff. And he's actually protected by a guy named Cardenas. We see, we actually unpack the paintings of some of the very famous painters like Siqueros and Frida Kahlo and Deo Rivera. You see black bodies within the indigenous people. And so the conversation of the African diaspora has to extend itself, in my view, to not only Texas and South Texas, but into the Caribbean and into Mexico, and they're all in dialogue with each other. Um, yeah. And so and something that we, we, we digest every day is black culture, right? I mean, every day. Every day we, we participate in some kind of black culture where music, dialogue, dress, and it, 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 it's profound.
I kind of a little bit just want to discuss just sort of how nowadays, though, there's a lot of discussion about racism, right, and, and color. Even though what you just mentioned, like, it, it all sounds great, but there's also that racism and especially color oh yeah no i mean i'm no not necessarily saying that there's not racism there's a racism to accept and to and, and all the communities and one of the things that i and this might not go very well with your listeners but i will say that the black community has done better with colorism than the latino community if we look at people like Meta cj walker she developed makeup one of the first things was hair straighteners and bleaching bleaching products for your skin to get lighter right and if we look at the leaders originally, people that were, you know, leaders of the NAACP when they first established, very light-skinned people, right? And, and there was colorism. There's still colorism within the black community, right? I mean, just look at some of the main famous actors. Many of them are light-skinned, right? That conversation has not happened well enough in the Latino community, but it exists. I dare you today to go home and turn on any telenovela on TV, and you're going to see people, if they don't open their mouths, they look like they're Europeans, they're whites. And we have not had that idea that, that enough in our community, Latino community, to talk about well, colorism exists and it's real and it matters. I, I, I tell stories that when my kid was born, the very first question when families from Mexico came was like to visit us, it's like, está huero, is he white? Not if he had two hands, two arms or anything, was he white? And you go to areas today like Guadalajara, and, and the number one thing that they sell, that they always ask me to go and take, is sunscreen, because I don't want to get dark, you know what I mean? And so there's a sense of colorism, and the, 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 the lo que no es indio es mejor. You know? And so not, not it's necessarily compare itself to blackness, but indigenous dark people, right? And so this is why characters like La India Maria, Chavo, dark, Cantiflas, originally paints itself dark, because that scene is not having the status of not being of European descent. So you can watch any kind of sitcom, and they'll talk about being Spanish, not Indian or not Mexican, but being of Spanish descent. That's code for being light, being of good stock. And we have not done that enough well. The Caribbean is having this talk right now, right, of, of colorism with a woman called Amara La Negra, who is on uh, Love and Hip Hop, I think, Miami, that's having this conversation about being having natural hair, being dark, and being Latina, right? But the images are there. I mean, the, the racism and colorism exist. I mean, we, we, we only have to turn on a TV and listen to it, you know what I mean? And even people that are in sports, you know, Mexican sports, Latino sports, and what it means to be dark, you know? And we see it in Brazil, and we see it in Argentina, and we see it in Chile over and over and over, this idea of colorism. And I, I hate to call it colorism because I think it's racism, you know, and people have sort of... Well, it's not that racist. No, it's racist. It's racist. I mean, it's that you're looking at somebody's skin and saying that they're less than because they're dark or they don't have blue eyes or they color their hair or they want to be blonde, right? You know, I, I, I think we've sort of sugarcoated by saying colorism, right? And I think that's one of the things that the 1960s in the civil rights movement, both Chicano or triple Chicano, African-American, and Puerto Rican, that particular movement calls for what is natural, dark Black is beautiful, your Afro is beautiful, being indigenous, Chicano is beautiful, embrace it, being Puerto Rican from the island is beautiful. And it, it happens for a very small, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 
for Latino communities, a little bit more for African-American communities, and then it goes away. You know what I mean? Chris Rock has a great movie called Good Hair, and it talks about the hair products that affect the black community and where they come from. And he's talking about, you know, why that he doesn't want to tell his, his two baby girls that their hair is not beautiful the way it is, natural hair. And, and he traces hair and weaves how they come back to the United States and where they come from and why they cost so much money. And so it's a conversation I have with my students, you know, why do you straighten your hair? Well, because I don't like curly hair. It's, it's ugly, you know. I'm like, no, it's beautiful, right? But there have we also been told by society what is beautiful and what is not, right? And, and dark, curly hair, indigenous, Africanist, we don't see it on TV. And so we've been sort of programmed in a certain way, you know what I mean? And it's conversations like this that sort of help out. I mean, I mean, but this legacy has gone down. I mean, we, we can look at people like Michael Jackson, his sister, or Mexicans that become lighter and lighter as they get older. You know, Juan Graviel became lighter and lighter as he got older. Same thing with Cantiflas, you know. But, yeah, yeah, and it, it's straight-out racism. I mean, I, 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 people might disagree with me, but I, I, I have problem color, color, calling it colorism because it, 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 it lessens the blow of racism. So, but it's, it's real. It's really, really real. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting dynamic and that idea of colonialism that exists in our communities that, that if you're not European or white or of European descent, your stock is less. You know? and, and it's something that, that is real. That is really, really real. Is there anything else you like to add? Yeah, no, I'd just like to add that please continue keeping these stories alive. A lot of our 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 old our older African American population is dying off. Collect them, share them. I know sometimes they're tough to talk about, but they're important. You know, they're not not only important because, you know, we start realizing why people came here and why and what effect that they have. I know I always tell the story that you know, I didn't have to go to college to meet a black person. They were in my school, you know, and I had daily reactions to them. I had interactions with them. I played football with them. I dated them. And they were just part of my, you know, I had interactions already. I wasn't shocked when I went to San Marcos or my sister went to Austin. But what I was shocked by the racism that exists with my own community, my own Latino community, and and that idea that the otherness, you know, that they're yeah they're our community, but they they're they're over there, you know, and that having to deal with that personally, my family, you know, my sister marrying an African American man, and my mom and dad disowning them was really difficult, and and then realizing that it wasn't just my parents, there was other issues within the community, and it goes back, like I said, to the long legacy of of racism that exists and colonialism that exists in Latin America and, and the United States. And it's a good time to talk about these things. You know, I, I work at Texas A&M. We have a large, a growing African-American population that, that, that we've had these conversations with. And, and they're interesting because many of them are coming from Metro Houston, which is very diverse, you know. And then they come to a small town and they see things that they haven't seen before or experienced before. But keep these stories alive, please. You know, we can... We can we can share with, uh, with each other. It's, it's our history. The Valley history is dynamic. It continues to be dynamic. And, yeah, just share these stories and continue to sort of talk about them, you know, and, and be 
be open because sometimes these these stories can become very volatile or can be very confrontational because you know you a Latino is talking about a Black African community and you're making assumptions. I'm a historian. I write about what I what I read and what I discover, what I research, and I interpret it. And I'm only one voice, you know. And so mine is not the truth. It's just what I do. And so please be open. And 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 then, I mean the Black community has always been inviting. Always, you know, since I've been here as a kid, and I'm a 48-year-old man now, and it's always been open, but also be respectful of it. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for participating in the podcast. It was a really great interview. For those of you who are listening, we will have more episodes with the Village in the Valley founders and the presidents and board members. So please stay tuned. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Betty S. Kelso Foundation. It was produced by the Most History Communications team and edited by freelance podcast editor Leah Victoria Juarez. The song is Carpe Diem by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more about stories from the Rio Grande. Send your questions through the Anchor app You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Most History, Stories from the Rio Grande.